This is SAFM. Thank you very much, Sam Marshall. And this is the Enviro Show here on SAFM. And I'm Nancy Richards. And the team today, we've got Rob Parkin, we've got Kim Winter, and we've got you. And if you'd like to join us, you're most welcome. The number to call us on is 0892 10 2010. If you'd like to join in the conversation, I suspect you might. But let me tell you what we've got lined up. Well, yesterday was World Environment Day, in case you didn't know, so what better way we thought than to start our brand new sporadic series here on the Enviro Show on conservation icons. And who better to start it with than a man who didn't set out to become one, but he's grown into the role in a big way. He's extreme polar swimmer, he's Lewis Gordon Pugh, and he has just launched his latest book, by the way. It's called 21 Yaks and a Speedo, we'll be hearing a little bit about that too. But I'm really looking forward to hearing the journey, how this young maritime lawyer became uh, an ocean advocate, which is really exciting. I have to tell you, he's a bit wounded, but he's managed to make it into the studio, so looking forward to hearing all about that. After that, we're going to be talking to a South African couple who, after 10 years living abroad in Dublin, in fact, came back to sunny South Africa to start up, guess what, a solar company as a way of leaving a legacy for their children. What a good idea. We'll also be hearing about the WWF's World Environment Day campaign theme for this year, which is Think, Eat, Save. And to close, or just before 10 o'clock, our green goodie tonight is Kaya Power. And what they're doing is greening up the Wacky Wine Festival in Robertson this coming weekend. So that's what we've got lined up. And once again, if you'd like to share, 0892 10 2010. If you want to share in another way, you can send us an email. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. Or our Facebook page, you can share right now. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Just a quick bit of eco-info, which I think is kind of apposite or pertinent. World Oceans Day coming up this Saturday, and to mark it right here in Cape Town, there's going to be an Africa Marine Debris Summit. Uh, we heard about it earlier on otherwise. Well, the theme this year is, together we have the power to protect the ocean. WWF has released a, a new study on shipping accidents, incidentally, indicating how some of the world's most iconic oceans are also those that are most at risk. The South China Sea and the East Indies, East Mediterranean and the Black Sea, North Sea, British Isles were all found to be hotspots for accidents involving ships with 293 accidents since uh, 1999. That's in the South China Sea and the East Indies alone, home to 76% of the world's coral species. So you can imagine the damage that that did to them. And here in South Africa, certainly we've had our fair share of shipping accidents. You might remember back in 2000, an iron ore ship, the Treasure, sank carrying 1,300 tonnes of fuel, damaging over 40,000 African penguins, um, about 44% of the global population. And, they, and again, in 2004, a bulk ore carrier, the Apollo Sea, also ran into trouble off our coast, spillage from which affected approximately 10,000 penguins, of which 5,000 died. So we look out there at the sea and we think it's all, uh, you know, it's impenetrable and all will be well, but in fact uh, it's suffering as are all the creatures that are living in it. So that's just a little bit of eco-info to get you into the mood for our first guest. And you're listening to The Enviro Show. The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za. The National Arts Festival, 11 days of amazing, in partnership with SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. 
Right here on SAFM, it's a we claim it's the greenest show on the station and uh, greenest show on the subject of the earth. And introducing here on the Enviro Show a new and sporadic series. And I say that it's a sporadic series because they are a rare species, conservation icons. And to launch the series, who better, as I keep saying, than Lewis Gordon Pugh? And if you don't know who he is, He's an extreme swimmer, he's a speaker, he's a motivator, he's now an ocean advocate, which is very appropriate with World Ocean Day around the corner. He's also the author of a couple of books, the latest of which is called 21 Yaks and a Speedo, How to Achieve Your Impossible. Great title. Lewis, how wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much, Nancy. How wonderful to have nearly all of you with us. I'm just a little bit concerned about your wound there. You've got a very badly bandaged hand. Um, what happened? Has it, the it environment come back to bite you? Yes, it looks worse than it actually is. I, uh, I was kayaking off Simonstown. A big wave came along. I fell out and I landed on a sea urchin. And the spines went right deep into my hand. I couldn't get them out and I had to have an operation to actually remove them two days ago. You. I suppose, aside from it being extremely painful, it would have raised your respect that you already have for the oceans, just because, little creature as it is, what a lot of damage. I've always had a lot of respect for the mm. oceans. I love oceans, and uh, I love being around animals, all of them, including sea urchins. And you love being around oceans. You love being in oceans. Yes. I've just been reading the first chapter of your book, 21 Yaks and a Speedo, and it's a story of how, as a young a young man, I think you were 17, yes. you? and you swam the, the English Channel, um, the most terrifying story. I mean, I was right there in the water with you. I think at one point somebody said to you, oh, well, you know, you've only got a couple of hours yet left to go, and it turned out that you had way more than a couple of hours. Is that where it began, your love of oceans? Take us back to the beginning. Well, I, I grew up in Plymouth in England, and so I grew up next to the sea. My father was, was in the Royal Navy, so I've always been around the oceans. Uh, when I was ten, uh, 10 years old, I moved out to, to South Africa, initially to Grahamstown, and then we went to live in, in Cape Town. And I remember as a young boy, I was at Camps Bay High School, and I remember just looking out of the window. And because my parents had told me about all the great explorers, you know, Nansen, uh, Amundsen, Captain Scott, Shackleton, these guys, I used to look south. And I just used to look out of the classroom across Camps Bay Beach and think 5,000 kilometers south of here is Antarctica. And I just desperately wanted to go there. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it was right there. It was, it was sort of like a germ of an idea. I think your father was very instrumental and he told you a lot of things. He was, yeah. he was a great informer. He was, a, he was a, he quite powerful in your life. Yes, I mean, he was a lot older than I was. Uh, he had served in the, in the final days of the Second World War. He'd then gone off to the South Pacific. He was involved with the first British atomic bomb test. He used to describe it with the most vivid detail. You know, he was 10 kilometers away from the epicenter when they, when, they, when they blew up that atomic bomb. And he said, Lewis, the bomb was so powerful that I literally had to put my ha hands over my protector goggles. And when I did that, I could actually see an X-ray of the bones of my fingers. That's how powerful mm. it was. That's how destructive it was. And afterwards, his responsibility was to go around the whole bomb site and pick up all the dead animals. And, you know, he was there for a number of the atomic bomb tests. And just to give you an idea of the number of bomb tests which were done over that period of time, Britain did 45 nuclear bombs, Russia 700, and the United States of America over 1,500. Uh, when I was... 10, we then moved out to South Africa, and, and, and every holiday my dad used to take us to a national park. 
I think it was, you know, he had, he had seen what we can do to the environment. He desperately wanted me to love it and to respect it. Hmm. And kind of before his time, in a way. I mean, I was talking about how rare conservation icons are. Yeah. There have been many over the years, but it's become, you know, as the world has become more fragile and we're doing more damage, people are, are you know, stepping up to the plate. But when your dad was a lad, it yeah. perhaps wasn't so, uh, wasn't so popular. Yeah, you know, it was a different era. Mm. Uh, he had served as a doctor in London during the Blitz and he had seen the destruction there and I suspect that many of the people who had seen what had happened there desperately wanted to have a nuclear weapon. They thought that this would end all wars. But the cost, the cost, the environmental cost, it was huge. Let's move on from your dad, let's move on to you because um, clearly the oceans had already got to you because I think you studied to be a maritime lawyer. Yes. So sea was going to come into it one way or another. However, you talk about your dad's exploits, but you were no stranger to danger yourself. I think you were in the SAS for some years. Yes, I spent uh, a few years in the SAS. What did, how, did that, how did that grow you? I think it was made quite an impression on you. Yes, and, and all in a good way. I mean, the people you meet there are incredible people. I mean, it's a very robust organisation. Uh, it's a no-nonsense type of organisation, but it's, a, it's an organisation or a regiment formed on deep principles and you, you really learn how to work as a team, in small teams. And it was on the basis of that that I was then able to go and put together expeditions in the most remote parts of the world because I'd learned how to work as part of a team, how to lead teams, and it was, it, it was instrumental for me. The expeditions is really is kind of where your love of the environment became even more cemented. I talked about your 17-year-old swim across the channel. Uh, interesting to note that um, although people cover themselves with grease, you say that that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. But let's not let's not get back by sidetracked. Um, that was one of your first sort of big swims. But after that, when did the expedition start coming into your life? Around about 2003. So I had done a swim around the most southern point of Africa, around Cape Agulhas. I was then in, in, in Norway, and Norway is the most incredibly beautiful country in the world. And I went up to North Cape. Now, North Cape, people always ask me, which is the most beautiful Cape in the world? And it's hard. It's, I mean, it's like asking a parent which child they like the most. The Cape of Good Hope is, is, is so beautiful. It's, it's so majestic. Cape Horn is wild. North Cape the top of Norway is something special. He's got these massive, enormous cliffs. They go down, you've got puffins in the water, you've got reindeer on, along the cliffs. And I just went there and I thought, I want to swim around the most northern place in Europe. I'd swim around the most southern point of Africa, and this sort of seemed to be the right place to, to move. But the water was extremely cold, and so I had to learn how to swim in very, very cold water. And once I'd done that, we then went further north to the island of Spitsbergen, where the water was even colder, down to four degrees. And I remember finishing the swim there and then looking north and thinking, I wonder if one day we're going to be able to do a swim of the North Pole. At the time, you couldn't do it. The place was frozen over. But then 2005, 2006, 23% of the Arctic sea ice cover melted away. And I went there to do a symbolic swim. You shouldn't be able to swim there. And I hope that if I did that, it would literally shake the lapels of world leaders. Did it? I, think I know it, that you had the ear. I mean, once, once yeah, you'd I, done that, something like that, you had the ear. I had the ear. You need to be able to speak truth to authority. So I certainly went in there and spoke truth to authority. Uh, then what happened was a credit crunch came. 
and everybody's attention seemed to, you know, in 2007, everybody was talking about the environment. 2008, 14 September, Lehman Brothers goes under, and all they were talking about then was suddenly forget about the environment. We need to get the world economy back on, on, on track. And everyone seems to have got div diverted away from, frankly, the most important issue. I mean, I know jobs are important. I know economies are important. But frankly, nothing is more important than ensuring that we have an environment in which we can live, which we can sustain ourselves, and which is sustainable for our children and our grandchildren as well. We owe a duty to them, not just to our current generations, but to future generations, to ensure that it's safe and sustainable. And we need to have, uh, you know, as you describe it, it's so beautiful and the puffins and the, and the cliffs and so on. But I suppose it wasn't just about the beauty. I think you developed a huge respect for it, for the water in which you were swimming. Did, did that come to you gradually? My father had nearly drowned as a young sailor. His godfather had drowned trying to rescue his two children, all three of them drowned. And so I grew up as a young boy with a healthy respect for the ocean, not to be intimidated by it. You know, in order to do a swim across the English Channel, you have to swim over the horizon. But uh, there was a love for it, but also this deep respect which my father had, 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 had taught me about respecting the ocean. So respect is a major part of it, but I think, you know, once you had your own respect had developed, I think it then became, you became sort of quite evangelical in wanting to, you know, not just shake the lapels of the world leaders, but to get the message out there to people as well. It's hard, I mean, the, the, the Karoo, the Serengeti, the Namib Desert, these big, great, big, beautiful wilderness areas, it's hard not to be inspired in them. I want you to imagine what the Arctic is like. It's like that, but a hundred times over. I mean, you, when you go to the Arctic and you see polar bears walking across the ice, when you go along the coastline and maybe you'll see a bowhead whale, these animals live to 200 years old. It's astonishing, 200 years old. When you see reindeer walking along these places, when you see beluga whales, it, 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 it's hard not to be inspired by these places and want to protect them. It's, 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 it's nigh impossible. But on your travels, you must have seen the effects um, that climate change has yeah. been having. Yes, certainly. In the Arctic, in Antarctica, in Patagonia, wherever you go, and especially up in the Himalayas now, you see retreating glaciers. I think I mentioned in 2005, 2006, 23% of the sea ice melted away in the Arctic. That wasn't something which you didn't see. Uh, I remember going back there. So I did the North Pole swim in 2007. 13 months later, I uh, tried to kayak all the way to the North Pole. I didn't get anywhere close to the North Pole, but I was so astounded by what I saw that I tried to call Gordon Brown, who was the Prime Minister at the time. And I got through to the office at, at, at Downing Street on my satellite phone. I said, I need to speak to the Prime Minister. I need to explain to him what's happening here. And they said, well, the Prime Minister's out. I said, here is my satellite telephone number. Please ask him to call me when he gets back to the office. He was at Belfast for the day. And then he called me and I said, Prime Minister, I said, I'm standing here and I was uh, just north of the island of Spitsbergen. I said, I have been paddling. I think it was for about 12 days. I've been paddling for 12 days and I was here 13 months ago. When I was here 13 months ago, the ice was in the main about three meters thick. 13 months later, it was about a meter thick. I said, we've wholly underestimated the speed of climate change. 
and I wasn't the only person calling for it, but I said we, we, we desperately need to take full responsibility for this. We need a climate change minister, we need to take action, we need to take it now. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, I was very, very happy when Britain uh, took action. They've committed to reducing their, their, their carbon emissions by 50%, uh, sorry, by 80% by 2050. It's a good start. It's a good starting point. We still need to go a long way. And are you happy with what we're doing here in South Africa? I don't spend a lot of time here in South Africa. Uh, that which I do, uh, I'm delighted now that you declared a marine protected area of the Prince Edward Islands, which are halfway between here and Antarctica. It's an incredible uh, uh, archipelago. I'm very, very happy with that. Uh, you know, we still have a long way to go. I'm very happy when I go into schools and the children are talking to me about climate change. That's clearly the, the curricula that uh, the, the children have been taught about climate change. They've been taught about protecting, protecting the environment. That's fantastic. But, but we can still go a long way. I'm, 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 I'm disappointed that people still think that fracking could perhaps be a solution to South Africa's energy needs. I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I know you've been a very strong opponent of fracking and perhaps yeah. another day we'll get you back on that. But I just yeah. want to come back to the oceans. And interesting to, that you, when you go to the schools, the children respond and they're already thinking climate change. But um, it's also uh, World Ocean Day on Saturday. There's going to be a big summit here in Cape Town yes. on uh, Africa marine debris. In your swimming around, do you ever find yourself bobbing up against debris that is that could be damaging you, that is certainly damaging other creatures? Do you see a, a lot of that? Always. Mm. So wherever you are in the oceans, whether you're in the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic, the Indian, the Southern, the Pacific, you will always see pollution. At the top of the Arctic Ocean is this island called Spitsbergen or Svalbard. At the most northern point at 80 degrees north, I remember walking across a beach. Now this is hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from the nearest town. Probably 2,000 kilometers away is maybe Glasgow or Belfast or one of these towns. On that beach was litter everywhere. Plastic, red, white, blue plastic, pieces of rope everywhere. It's been transported along the, uh, along the North Atlantic drift up into the Arctic. So what happens in one part of the world's ocean gets transported by the currents to another part of the world's oceans. What we do here in South Africa has a huge impact in what happens in South America. You drop a plastic bag off here, off Sea Point, eventually it'll land up on a beach in South America just because of the currents. Yeah, and, it's, it's a message in a bottle story in a slightly different way, isn't yeah. it? But, but I mean, you started off talking about some of these shipwrecks. Mm. Uh, you'll recall the shipwreck, the Selly one. I mean, that was a ship which uh, ran aground off Bloberg Strand. The oil was seeping out year upon year. Uh, last year, I went to see what Sankob were doing. I mean, this is this incredible organization in South Africa, made up largely of volunteers that clean all these penguins. I remember watching them clean this African penguin, and it had oil all over it, and it was spluttering, and it was just desperately trying to breathe. And it's hard not to be moved by it. And the head of the place, a lady called Margaret Rostroff, she said something to me which blew me away. She said, in, uh, in 1900, we had between f 4 million and 3 million African penguins. A hundred years later, that had dropped from that number down to 100,000. And in just 13 years, it's gone from 100,000 down to just 60,000. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you think about the treasure. The treasure, when, 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 when that sank, 
Sankop did the biggest animal rescue in history. They cleaned 20,000 penguins, they moved another 20,000. That's 40,000 penguins which we could have lost. That's the majority of the world's population of African penguins. And you think, I mean, that's a startling statistic going from 4 million, 3 to 4 million African penguins down to 60,000. That has been replicated all over the world. Whether you are in the Great Barrier Reef, the Coral Sea, definitely the North Sea of the east coast of Canada, wherever we are. And it's been caused by three things. It's been caused by pollution, not just sort of, so when I talk about pollution, I talk about, you know, oil, but also plastic. It's been caused by climate change and it's been caused by desperate overfishing. Those three things. We all have a role to play one way or another, but I, I just want to get you back to the oceans. Well, not that we've ever left them, but you are going to immerse yourself in oceans. I think you've got a new expedition that you're just about to, or very soon, uh, embark upon. Can you tell us? What can you tell us? I can't wait to start it. Okay. I, 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 I am I'm so excited. And I mean, it leads on from the African penguin story. I, I called a friend of mine in London and I said to her, you know, is this a normal statistic, dropping from 4 million all the way down to you know to 60,000 she said no she said wherever you go this is what's happening and so I made a decision there right there and then that I wanted to go around the world's oceans to the mo to the most endangered parts of the world's ocean and join the dots between people from the Galapagos to the Great Barrier Reef all the way around the world to these areas and I wanted to campaign for marine protected areas so big national parks we dream of having the biggest myself and my team, we dream of seeing the biggest national parks in the world's oceans, much bigger than Kruger National Park, much bigger than Serengeti or Yellowstone. These national parks on land were created about a hundred years ago, but we forgot to protect our oceans and less than 1% of our oceans are protected. So we're going to do this expedition. I'm not going to tell you, Nancy, precisely what we're going to do. We're going to announce it shortly in London, but it's very, very exciting. And we want to go to every single head of state en route and say, you need, please, to protect this ocean. You need to declare these as marine protected areas. And when we talk about marine protected areas, we talk not just about the legislation, but they need to be protected. They, you know, they need to be protected for future generations. From your lips to God's ears, I think is the expression. Just lastly, Lewis, and sadly, we, we're out of time. Um, two questions, 21 yaks and a speedo, how to achieve your impossible. It's a very personal book, it's, but it's, it's uh, you sharing your experiences to inspire other people. How would you like to inspire other people? I mean, you, you have the benefit, or at least people have the benefit of listening to you talking uh, at schools and in various places. But what can, you, what can you tell our listeners right now to inspire them? I was very, very lucky. The book is dedicated to my friend David Becker. I was standing outside St. Paul's Cathedral a number of years ago. I've been working as a maritime lawyer, but I dreamt about going to the Arctic. My parents had told me all these stories. And I said to him, David, I just want to go to the Arctic. He looked at me and he said, Lewis, it is so important that you follow your own dreams in life, because if you don't, you're going to be following somebody else's. And imagine getting all the way to the end of your life to realize you should have been, you've been following somebody else's dreams. And that started me on this incredible journey. And so this book is about if you've got a dream, no matter what it is, what are the things that you need to put in place to get it to happen? And, uh, you know, I've got, we've got some very, very good feedback on this book so far. And I'm really, uh, I'm going around South Africa now launching it. And there's speeches in Tiger Valley tomorrow in Hyde Park. 
uh, on Tuesday, in Wednesday in Johannesburg, Thursday in Durban, Friday in Pietermaritzburg. And I'd love people to come along and meet me and talk about protecting our environment and protecting our oceans and achieving their dreams. And be inspired, because certainly inspirational it is, as it has been chatting. Lewis, thank you so much. It's been a real joy. 21 Yaks and a Speedo, How to Achieve Your Impossible, is the title of the book. It's published by Jonathan Ball. And I think if you go onto your website, which is lewispew.com, yes. they'll be able to find all sorts of information and the details. Lewis, very best of luck. Look after that hand. Don't uh, go shaking hands with any more sea urchins. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Nancy. Let's agree yeah. to disagree and vice versa and just get the job done, right? So we can all yeah. be singing Kumbaya month and Manta, don't argue with the customer. Don't argue with even if he's wrong. It's like when you're in a tavern, Manta, and then a guy with his old star steps on your toe. You don't actually just clap him, not or you say, you know what? My foot went under your foot by mistake. And then you know they won't be any fight. <laughs> Join me, Manda Shongwe, every weekday, 4 to 6 a.m. on SAFM as I bring you Heads Up. This is SAFM. It is indeed. This is SAFM and this is the Enviro Show here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richardson. How interesting it was to hear Lewis Pugh, who I think we might call Mr. Ocean. And don't forget, once again, if you'd like info about uh, about his book and about his uh, expeditions, www.lewispugh.com. And we'll put that up on our Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, having spoken to Mr. Ocean, next up, let me introduce you to Mr. Sunshine. He's Pravan Goran who, together with his wife, Nirvana, came back to South Africa after 10 years in Dublin to start a solar business and uh, also to leave a legacy for their children. And their business is called Solatech, and we've got him on the line. Hi, Pravin. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So you've come back home to South Africa. That's correct, yes. Good, good. I think you came back home to South Africa to start up a solar business, but I think you were inspired by what you saw in Dublin, to be sure, to be sure. What did you see there? Um, I was involved in Dublin in, in a lot of wind farm installations, uh, starting right from uh, environmental impact studies all the way through to construction and project management for clients right seeing it right through to the end um, and that in really inspired both Nirvana and I um, to open up you know, a business that would be sustainable a sustainable business uh, in the solar wind farm area and we brought that back to South Africa okay because had you stayed in Dublin, you might have had wind, but you might not have had so much so sunshine. Much sun. Yeah. No, no. You'd be very lucky to get, uh, how can I say, four hours of sunshine a day. Nonetheless, it's nice that you came back anyway, because there's all sorts of potential to be working on alternative energies here. We have, we have plenty of potential. So what was your plan? Our plan was um, mainly to get into solar energy. Um, wind is uh, mainly in South Africa on the coastal side. And at the moment was looking at huge capital investment. Whereas on the solar side, 
capital investment for homeowners is not that a huge outlay. And we are starting with uh, introducing solar, both from solar geysers to photovoltaics. And that's where our focus is. Okay. On a small scale, I mean, when you say, you know, for, uh, for a domestic a homeowner, it's not such a huge capital investment. So are you looking at uh, introducing it on a domestic level? Yes, we are. Okay. Uh, we do have standard packages that we've designed to assist homeowners to get on to the green energy wagon. Can you describe them? Um, we can take um, a client's home off uh, or starting to take them off grid with a standard package of roughly 50 to 2,000 rand. So we start off with your lighting, refrigerator, freezers, and we didn't, uh, that's our starting point. And then we can grow the system from there. So is your objective then to get people completely off the grid, not just to sort of supplement their energy usage? As far as possible as, you know, with financing, obviously, uh, their, you know, capabilities of financing the prior package, uh, we would like to take as far as possible as we can off-grid. Um, is it? Would you be able to apply the packages that you have to any type of building? Does it have to be new buildings? Can buildings be retrofitted? Buildings can be retrofitted. Does not have to be new buildings. Okay, so anybody can apply, and you can help them. Do you? I, I believe that you also do audits. So you will go to somebody's home and do an audit on that, what their usage is, and and help them that way. That's correct. We. Start off with an energy audit, yeah. and as we do the energy audit, we assess everything from lighting to refrigeration, and then we sit down with the client and we discuss a solution that we are going to introduce. If the client's happy with the uh, solution that we've come up with, and then we go ahead and do the project management and installation. Have you actually done any installations yet? I mean, I don't have a time frame as to when you came back and how far you're down the line with this. Uh, we are in operation at the moment. We've done two installations so far on residential houses in Johannesburg. Okay. And we've taken uh, both clients partially off-grid and the second phase is going to be in a couple of years' time to get them completely off-grid. I imagine that you walk the talk. Just lastly, your own home, are you completely off the grid yourself? We, at the moment, we are partially off-grid at home. Okay. So we have solar geysers as well as photovoltaics. And the systems that we have designed are expandable. So we can start off small and then gradually add on to the system to get you completely off the grid.
Raven, thank you very much. I'm going to give out your website. I think if anybody would like to actually see it for themselves, you've got all the information there. You're based in, in Johannesburg. So uh, it's www.solartechranberg.com. Is that right? That's correct. Lovely. Thank you very much. Well, very best of luck, and uh, I'm sure you're going to create a wonderful legacy for your children. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. Pravin Goran, he's the owner of Solartech. Once again, that's solartechranberg.com, solartechranberg.com. And we will put that up on our Facebook page. Don't forget the Enviro Show uh, on SAFM. We've got all sorts of goodies up there, so have yourself a look and you can see what we've been talking about. Well, moving on next, uh, something to consider if you're just about to throw away half a plate of, uh, half an eaten plate of food, and I hope you're not. Did you know that in a country where some 60% of households experience food insecurity, approximately 10 million tonnes of food waste is generated every year? Well, that's according to the CSIR. Um, so it's not surprisingly, the campaign for this year's World Environment Day is Think, Eat, Save, because we can't be going along throwing away all this food. Well, to tell us a little bit more about the Think, Eat, Save campaign on the line, WWFSA Market Transformation Manager Tatiana von Bormann. Hi, Tatiana. Good evening, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Think, Eat, Save. Well, I mean, just listening to that statistic there, it seems that we're throwing away a huge amount of food. Is that is that cooked food that we're throwing away? Is it uh, is it food that's just not reaching the shops? What Do we know anything about that? I think we're, we're certainly beginning to understand more about what we're wasting. And, and as a developing nation, we're wasting more in the early parts of the supply chain. So post-harvest is, is I think, where the, the chief impact is coming, unlike the developed world, where it's really, you know, something like a fifth of waste is happening at consumer level. So like you say, people throwing away food, either half-eaten or never even touched. Um, and But in South Africa, we also have a significant problem at the consumer level. So it's, it's all through the chain, and I think everybody has... Um, something they can be doing to to address waste food waste and that's really what world environment day is about it's about each one of us um reviewing our our choices and taking conscious actions to address our environmental impact yes reviewing our choices about what we buy what we eat what we prepare Uh, just explain the post-harvest situation then why are we going so wrong what's happening is the harvest being well the crops being harvested and in what way are we losing them at that point well, I, th- I think, again, it's, it's a number of different um, uh, problems coming in there. One of them, obviously, is cold chain management, and that mm. might be at the farm level, you know, things not being properly um, stored from, from after harvest, but all the way through to the retailer where, for instance, milk is being delivered in crates and then sitting in the, in the holding bay for a while before it reaches the fridge, and that means that the shelf life of the, fil- the milk is, is dramatically reduced. So it depends on the product and on the, the cold chain management, essentially. And also because we in South Africa, we have farmers at all different levels of sophistication. It, it also means that, that often things just aren't, you know, from a, from a financial access perspective, it's just not as easy for the farmer to retain things at the, the recommended um, temperature from the point of harvest to the point of, of consumer, you know, purchase. So I suppose what we're looking at there, post-harvest, you know, things going to waste on that point, we're looking at farmers, we're looking at transport companies, we're looking at stores and supermarkets to improve their their cold chain uh, management. We're looking at, you know, 
those people as opposed to us. So there may or may not be something, unless you're a farmer, a transporter, or a supermarket owner, there may not be uh, much you can do about that. But coming back to the, you say in developed countries, a fifth of food gets thrown away. At what point are we throwing away food? Are we are we, are so, we buying so too I, much and then throwing it away? Or? Yes, and in fact, I, I got my stats wrong. It's in, mm. in developed countries, it's a third of food that's being oh, thrown oh away. Yes, and in, and in developing countries, it's a fifth. Okay. So in the supply chain, it's a fifth in developing countries. And so and uh, the World Environment Day is really about individual action, and food is one of those things where we, we really do have power as individuals. So I think that that's I, – I wouldn't want to suggest that each one of us have no responsibility in yeah. food waste. We, we all – you know, even if it's the milk in the bottom of the cereal bowl, which we unthinkingly pour down the drain, it has a, a significant environmental impact. So there are there are all sorts of ways that we waste food unthinkingly, and I think that's what World Environment Day is about. It's about giving us the power to really think about those things differently. Mm, gosh, thinking about the milk in the bottom of the cereal bowl, you're so right. I can, yeah, yeah. I can, I can we see did it. A, yeah. a big study last year where we yeah. looked at the environmental impact of milk production, and really that, that those couple of teaspoons in the bottom of the milk bowl have far more environmental impact than the one liter plastic package that we throw in the bin so so it really is something to think about we're all very focused on on recycling and we forget that it's actually the food in the package where the real impact sits you know where all the water and energy and and everything that went to producing that food is is really in there as opposed to in the package so we're consuming it, but maybe in some cases thoughtlessly. Are we buying in some cases thoughtlessly? I mean, if you go into the average uh, supermarket on a Saturday morning, you see people with trolley loads of stuff. Are, are we buying too much at any one time? Then you think, you know, you have to sort of cut down your, your transport costs. You don't want to be driving in your car back and forth to the shops. You've got to buy in bulk. Yeah. Oof, all these issues. Yes, I, I suppose we're all guilty of a bit of impulse, impulse purchasing. So I think, yes, we probably are buying more than we can consume. I don't think we necessarily go through the supermarket thinking, you know, will I eat this within the, you know, sell by date or the, the best before date. So, yes, I think that's partly what this World Environmental Message, Environmental Day message is about. It's about that think. So really think. And it's think about only buying what you're going to consume. But it's also about thinking about local and seasonal and fresh and perhaps eating a little bit less meat and dairy where their real environmental burden sits. And then eat, as in eat everything that's, that you've bought and save so that if things are going to go off before you've eaten them, look at ways of saving them, cooking it up and freezing it or even composting as opposed to just sending it off to landfill. Yes, and I suppose this is something you can do at home and, uh, you know, that's within your power of control. But if you go to a restaurant or a hotel or, I mean, I was at a hotel just recently and massive amounts of food laid out, certainly a whole lot of which is not going to get eaten um, and can't be stored away and brought out again the next day. Our hospitality industry, is that a very guilty party? Yeah, I think you make a good point. I think that um, we've all been given massive servings that we can't eat, and it leaves you feeling fairly guilty when you send a lot back to the kitchen. Um, there are some hotels, um, the Mount Nelson is one that I can immediately think of, who have become part of a, um, a system where their food waste is 
given to worms and they're actually making compost for vegetable gardens which then um, the vegetables from which are served to the guests so there is that sort of full cycle thinking in some hotels but those are probably the enlightened few um, I think from a, a cost efficiency perspective a lot of catering companies do try to minimize waste but um, you're right, that is, that is definitely a, a target for this message as well, beyond the individual. Because I think cooked food can become quite toxic, am I right? I think it, it, if it ends up in landfills, it mm. can be quite toxic. Well, I think um, any organic matter that lends, ends up in landfill can become toxic. You know, the, the issue of leachate, which is a, a, a water, essentially, that leaches out of any organic, be it, be it meat or vegetables, uh, matter in, um, in the landfill, is a highly toxic substance and requires massive investment to clean that water and deal with that water so that it doesn't contaminate groundwater and, and you know, uh, bodies of water, surface water as well. So yes, there is a, uh, there, in some countries there are laws that require zero food waste to landfill. And I think in time, certainly as our landfill um, issues become, you know, from a land perspective, become ever more constrained, we're going to start to see laws like that in this country, which will force um, retailers and catering companies and hotels and, and big manufacturers to really seriously address their food waste mm. issues. So, think, eat, save. That's, uh, that's the, the line established for World Environment Day, but I think it's going to be the theme that, to carry us right through the year. Think, eat, save. What are, what are the principles, then, that we should be looking at? Well, I think we've touched on some of them. Certainly mm. that issue of thinking about what you buy and, and how much you buy and when you buy it. Um, I think that's quite straightforward. And, and from a cost perspective, we're, we're probably starting to do that. Some of us are already doing that. Um, the eat part is the fabulous part. It's about cherishing the, the um you know, the produce of our land and the fish of our sea and the, the labors of, from our hands. So that's, that's quite straightforward. I think we're all pretty clear on that instruction. And save is about saving money because food waste costs um, all of us. Um, it's about saving food, so it's about understanding what can be frozen, um, what can be, how to cook things and how best to preserve things that you aren't able to eat immediately. And it's also about, obviously, helping to, to save the planet, which is about really saving the, the um, human race. And how are you getting the message across? I mean, here we are chatting about it now, but uh, how are you getting, uh, getting it to spread to a wider audience? Well, you know, the, the World Environment Day is a United Nations program, and it's the world's biggest um, event for positive individual action, environmental action. So WWF is, is supporting it, as are many NGOs around the world. We're supporting it with, with this kind of messaging, but also we're trying to understand where the impacts are in the food supply chain and, and better understand when waste is occurring and how we can address that. So for us, it's, it's, it's more of a science-based approach than a, a rallying call for individuals. We're, we're trying to understand what the levers are in the system, essentially, that we can uh, play a role in adjusting so as to reduce food waste. And, and partly because the reality is that while we produce enough food to, to feed our um, population, it simply is not getting to everybody, mm. you know. Well, something to think about, um, and three very simple words, think, eat, and save. Uh, Tatiana, thank you very much, and uh, 
may you have a nice um, a nice rest of the evening and eat up whatever's left on your plate. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Tatiana von Woman, and she's from WWFSA. And once again, think, think, eat, save, and that's their message. And I guess it's something we could all do on a pretty much a daily basis. Stay with us. This is SAFM. Yay. Well, SAFM it is indeed, and this is the Enviro Show, uh, which brings us nearly to the end of the programme. Around about this time, we have ourselves a little green goodie. And don't forget, if you're producing anything or service or you have some sort of green uh, thing going in your life, in your business world, do let us know, because we're really keen to hear about people doing all sorts of wonderful things. We're at uh, Enviro Show, at Enviro at safm.co.za, Enviro at safm.co.za, or you can find us on Facebook and tell us about it there. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, our green goodie for this evening, or well, finally, I was in, in Roberts and Robertson earlier this week, and with everyone getting ready there for the Wacky Wine Weekend, I was very interested to see a very what I thought was a really green goodie. It was uh, goodie bags, in fact, goodie bags that they're producing for the Wacky Wine Weekend. Each and every visitor will be touting one of these little bags made from recycled cement bags. They've been produced by a company called Power uh, Kaya Power, uh, the owner of whom and the establisher of is Billy Hadlow, who we got on the line. Hi, Billy. Hi, good evening. How are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. So your company have been very busy producing all these Wacky Wine Weekend bags. Just tell us about them. Yes, um, I've got a, I started a company called Kaya Power, um, and it's like a battery system where people uh, in townships can, um, can have access to, to clean energy instead of using paraffin. And um, when I produced these um, power packs, I, I wanted to find a green product that I can present them in instead of having a, a carton box. And um, being a builder and being in the industry, I, you know, I always have been challenged with these bags flying around at building sites. So, yeah, I went ahead and changed them into carry bags. Okay. And that's where it started. Yeah. It's a very, very innovative thinking. <laughs> well, we'll come back to the battery system and, and the bags there in just a minute. But so now what you've done with these carrier bags for the Wacky Wine Weekend, they're not oh, carrying batteries, they're carrying, I don't know, tasting wine tasting glasses or whatever. Did you make them up specially for this? Yes. Um, um, Elisma, um from from the Wacky Wine Weekend, we managed to bump into each other and uh, they were looking for bags and and I said, what about, you know, these um, cement bags? And with PPC Cement, I call her Mama Francis, is the CSI manager. We got together and um, we then decided to train people, local people in Robertson, to make these bags. And, um, and that was actually the drive behind it, that we teach local people the skill to produce them. And hopefully, once there's more orders, we can use them again. Are they brand new clean bags, or are we sort of brushing the cement dust off them? Um, the, the the first ones were, were with the cement were dusted off, um, but with those big volumes, we had to sort of mix them in with bags that uh, PPC cement had uh, surplus bags, and they were going to burn them. So we were happy to take them off their hands and and, and use them for the project. Hmm. Will you be able to, now that you've done this one particular um, one batch, will you be able to take orders for more, do you think? I mean, do you think the people in Robertson there would be up for producing more? Definitely. I think, um, you know, making the 18,000 bags was a, was a huge order, um, being there first. And a part of, of, 
of the 18,000 bags were made in, um, uh, in, in Joburg at Time for Change. Um, it's an orphanage, and, um, and the people there also have been taught the skill to make the bags. Okay. That's one part of the story. The other part of the story, I'd like to come back to you and your battery system and uh, using clean energy instead of paraffin. And I think this is something that you, um, you established after traveling all around southern Africa, watching people's habits. Just explain that, that journey. Yes, um, I was um, about three years ago. I was traveling with a, a big Unimog truck um, for about six months, and in this time, we saw people in sort of a desert area using their cell phones. And I wonder, you know, where where they've been ge- getting the power from, charging these units. And once I came back home, I, I one night dropped my workers, and I saw um, a girl standing under a streetlight, and I just thought, yo, this is not, you know, this is not right. And uh, what can I do about it? And uh, I took a five-liter plastic container, which is recycled, uh, just the ordinary one, and I put a battery in it with with a cigarette lighter in the lid, and it evolved and became this um, battery pack that can be charged via solar or grid power, and uh, it creates jobs with a charging station for an agent or an unemployed person to sit and recharge these batteries and swap them out once they're depleted by customers coming past. Hmm. I'm trying to think if I've got a really clear picture of that. So we've got a five-litre plastic container, yep. and in it you put a battery. Correct. Yeah, and then you put a lighter. Yeah, a lighter socket. You know, like you'll drive around in your car? Okay. That, that socket um, has been fitted into the, the lid of the five-litre can, um, and that's then connected to the battery with some electronics, um, and that manages the battery. Um, the, you know, and once it's um, depleted, that will actually cut out the power from the socket, and um, and then people can go and change them and swap them out at these charging stations, um, and which is much better and safer, and you know all the good things about mm. solar energy. Have you it's gone? In, have you gone into production with them? I've um, I've done all the field tests, and it took a long time to get the right um, sort of business model behind it. So that it's a sustainable, um, you know, project that uh, that we can make money from it, and in that way keep the project going. Otherwise, these projects just die because yeah. of lack of funding. Yeah, and uh, you, I mean, presumably you've got to get all the the bits and pieces together. Your original five liter plastic container was recycled. Is that the plan to use recyclable materials as well? Yes. Yeah. Correct. That's so. So, so the idea is to only use recycled material. Um, and um, yeah, and the, and the mechanism is also produced locally in South Africa, the, the electronic parts, um, so that I don't have to go and manufacture these things in China or, or across the waters, um, which also is, is very convenient. And, and I think, um, you know, it's important to create the jobs in South Africa. I so you've got to create the jobs, and once you've got the, once you've got the units going, you've then got to create the market. Are they selling to people, take one look at them and think, what on earth is this? Are people buying into the idea? The challenge is, there is a big challenge with um, creating or changing the habits of of people. You know, they're used to just using the paraffin for cooking and for lights. Um, So so it is going to take a long and a big sort of walk to try and get people and say, look, this is better, this is safer. And the fact that you can run a small TV, DVD from it, you can charge a cell phone, there's so much more applications from this power pack 
than what they would have had from the paraffin. So it's to switch those minds, and um, it is a challenge. People want grid power. They don't want, you know, the small power packs. Yeah. Yeah. Where, um, nonetheless, having said that, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are thinking, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Where yeah. are they available? Um, I'm based in Stellenbosch. Sorry, um, you're based in? In Stellenbosch. Oh, yeah. Cape Town. Yeah. And um, we've been running a few pilot projects in Franschhoek and, yeah, in Stellenbosch. Um, and about two weeks ago, I only got my patents registered. So up till then, I didn't want to make too much noise about it. Um, and just sort of did all the field testing, as I said. So the challenge for me now is to get funding and to get enough um, attraction to roll this out and to be able to get a distribution network across South Africa um, to get the Kaya powers going. How, how far down the line are you with the, with the distribution network? Because, I mean, you know, the more you can produce and the more you can sell, the more the whole project is viable. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm still looking for, um, you know, the right partners. Um, there's a few that I've got in mind and that we got, uh, you know, that we want to approach. Um, that's already got a, a sort of a footprint in townships. Um, and if we can hook up with them, um, we can then have a far better and quicker, stronger distribution network um, than me trying or my company trying to, you know, just to get it going by myself. Yeah. Um, is to hook on with and, you know, partner with bigger distribution companies. Billy Hadlow, I think best I give out your details because if anybody would like to uh, do that hooking up with you and maybe uh, help out there, I think that would be a good call. So it's kayapower.co.za, is that right? That is correct. Kaya is with a H, K-H-A-Y-A, tower.co.za. Excellent. Um, might I give out your cell phone number? Yep, you can have Why it. Not? Um, Why not? 082-336-7929. Yep. Perfect. Listen to that phone ring. Lovely. Yeah. Thank Billy, you very, very much best for of luck. Me. Uh, yes. No, I hope, I hope it really comes together. And I certainly, I think your wacky wine weekend bags are really lots of fun. So, very best of luck. Thank you. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Cheers. Billy Hadlow, well, he's the founder of Kaya Power. What a good idea. Uh, www.khayapower.co.za. We will put the link up there on our Facebook page. That's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you want to give Billy a shout, it's 082-336-7929. And whilst I'm busy giving out details, let me give you once again the SolarTech people. That's solartechranberg.com. That's their website. And if you'd like to lay your hands on a copy of Lewis Pugh's book, Really super, very inspirational. 21 Yaks and a Speedo, How to Achieve Your Impossible. And that's published by Jonathan Ball. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show tonight. Thanks, guys. Thanks, team. That's uh, Rob Parkin and Kim Winter. I'm Nancy Richards. I'll be back again tomorrow with the um, otherwise uh, talking women. And don't forget, once again, get in touch with us, enviro at safm.co.za.